Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Wanted to make sure you were listening to the Bill Simmons podcast this year. We stepped it up with the guests. I don't even have time to list all of them, but let's just say we have had a who's who of A-listers, A-minus-listers, B-plus-listers in sports, pop culture, movies, music. I mean, where else can you get Kevin Durant, Steve Ballmer, Jimmy Iovine, and Charlize Theron in the span of six weeks? Nowhere. The answer is nowhere. You can find that literally nowhere other than the Bill Simmons podcast. We are in year 11. It's been an honor to do it. Hope you subscribe. Bill Simmons podcast. Check it out. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman. I was a staff writer at TheRinger.com before I was killed watching Game 2 of the World Series at Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles. The Big Apple, the city that never sleeps, the city by the bay, Los Angeles. And joining me from New York and the land of the living is staff writer Ben Lindbergh. Hello, Ben. Hello. Don't sell yourself short. You survived and thrived and filed a game story the same night, somehow distilling all of the craziness that happened in World Series Game 2 into an article that you submitted in a timely fashion. You should be wearing your I Live Through Game 2 t-shirt. Yeah, you should uh, talk to some of the editorial staff out here, uh, editors, fact checkers, <laughs> uh, about whether or not I actually filed in a timely fashion. We, uh, Zach Cram <laughs> well, and I almost got... both been there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Zach Cram and I almost got kicked out of Dodger State and we were there so late. So it was uh, <laughs> almost sunrise on the East Coast by the time we were done. So I'm happy to be awake once again and talking to you and sharing these memories of uh, one of the wildest World Series games I've ever seen. It certainly was. And I think there's only one way for us to talk about this, which is to do a draft, which, as longtime listeners will remember, is what we did for World Series Game 7 last year. Every now and then there's just one of these timeless, crazy games where you just can't talk about it in any other way than to run down a long list of the amazing stuff that happened. And I feel bad about just skipping over game one because there would have been things to talk about from game one, too. And Clayton Kershaw was brilliant. And I think we were both happy to see that story finally, hopefully put to rest. We'll see. But yeah, we'll see if it actually dies. There's much yeah. to talk about here. Yeah. I mean, he'll he'll have one more start in the series. So there's time either for a stake to be driven into it or for it to be resurrected. Let's hope that's not the case. But maybe before we get into the actual drafting of things from this game, maybe we could just talk about the the backlash to Dave Roberts, which frankly, I've been surprised by. And I think you have too. And our colleague Zach Cram has also, he wrote about it for The Ringer. But there has been a lot of criticism of him for pulling Rich Hill after four innings, which indirectly in a way led to some of the situations later where maybe the Dodgers had to use some pitchers that they would have preferred not to use in a situation like this. But at the time, I didn't have any criticism no, of that yeah. decision to pull Hill. And in retrospect, I think it makes sense given what we knew at the time. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't say I'm surprised by the criticism. I think that a lot of it is just, you know, sort of fans and analysts sort of adjust. Trying, You know, we talked about managers struggling to uh, just to a playoff baseball situation where uh, the starter's not necessarily expected to go five innings, let alone seven. So, and I think mm -hmm. just looking at Hill, I think the Astros really bailed him out a couple of times. You know, particularly he was struggling to command uh, in the first inning, and Bregman and Altuve got really aggressive. And I think the Astros could have broken the game open right there. 
Um, so I think the Dodgers were lucky to get through four innings of him without only allowing the one run. And the other thing is that one through five of the of the Astros, the way the lineup was set up yesterday, was all right-handed. It's probably their five best hitters right now uh, with McCann and Reddick right. and, and Marwin Gonzalez not really hitting that well. And that's, you know, that's where you go to Maeda, who's been death on, on right-handers. So, you know. Mm-hmm. And this worked out exactly the way Dave Roberts wanted it to, with him giving the ball yeah. to Kenley Jansen in the eighth inning, you know, in a situation where he's been absolutely trustworthy in the past. And if they're, you know, I don't know that there are three or you know more than three pitchers in baseball. I'd I'd rather give the ball to to try to get six outs at home, you know, with the two run lead than Kenley Jansen. So you know, I, I, it's possible. I mean, this is the thing about baseball. It's possible to make all the right decisions and still not have it work. But, you know, if you're not right, it's but the way that playoff baseball works right now, if you're not used to it, then it, you know, I could understand, you know, Hill only gave up one run. Why are you taking him out before he's had a chance to earn the win? Like it's under that mm-hmm. that line of criticism. Criticism is understandable, but even though I don't necessarily agree with it. And I think Zach did a, a good job of, of uh, you know, working out that argument. So if, if you're still on the fence about yeah. that, you should go read his article on theringer.com. Yeah, this is what the Dodgers did all season long. If you look at a list of teams and the number of plate appearances that their starters faced batters the third time through the order, the Dodgers are at the very bottom of that list. They did not leave their starters in long enough to have hitters face them three times in a game. And if you look at that list, it's actually like the Dodgers followed by the worst pitching staffs in baseball, Mm -hmm. like the Marlins, the Reds, the Mariners. And that's because often when starters don't last long in games, it's because they're not good starters and they get knocked around. But in the Dodgers case, it was an intentional tactic. It was a result of their wanting to rest guys and having a surplus of starters throughout the year and doing their 10 day DL thing and hopefully getting guys to this point in the season without burning out their arms too much. And of course, Hill had the blister issues early on and has had health issues throughout his career. So they've been cautious with him all year. And I thought it made sense at the time. And yeah, there isn't any pitcher I would rather have in that situation than Kenley Jansen. And this time it just didn't work out. And maybe you could quibble with just how quickly Roberts went through relievers between Hill and Jansen, yeah, which I, then left them having to use Fields and, and Brandon McCarthy in extra innings, which was not ideal. But I think the decision to pull Hill itself was not the problem. Yeah, I think I think that's right. They, there is open criticism for him maybe not double switching Watson into uh, to you know throw more than that one pitch or going to Stripling. You know, instead of Morrow, I think you could trust uh, Morrow and Jansen to to get those nine outs without Stripling putting the guy on base. Um, not that that mm-hmm. you know, but the only impact that that had was it was McCarthy who came in in the eleventh and not Stripling. You know, I'd probably rather have Stripling than McCarthy in the game at that point, but it's probably six of one half dozen in the other at that point. Yeah, I, you know, I, I have no particular issue with the way that, that Dave Roberts managed that game. Yeah. So after innumerable twists and turns and 11 innings, the Astros win this game 7-6. They even the series 1-1, to but so many things happened between the first pitch almost by Vince Scully and the last pitches. And we just want to talk about some of the highlights because I think focusing on Roberts really does a disservice to this game, which mm-hmm. did not come down to managerial moves. It came down to the craziness of playoff baseball and players being heroes and other players not coming up big in certain moments and just luck and randomness intervening in really wonderful ways. And 
if you look at this just statistically and try to quantify what we all felt on Wednesday night, you could point out that according to the baseball gauge, this was of 655 World Series games ever played. This one ranked 15th in terms of the total change in win expectancy. So one team going up and then the other team coming back. And yeah, it feels that right. multiple times. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's 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 pretty good. 15 out of 655. And I think if anything, it felt even crazier in the moment. So I'll let you start off. Maybe we should just draft first overall kind of jointly. Zach Cram having to tear up his original gamer after he was 800 <laughs> words in. <laughs> and that was like, what, hours and runs before the actual end of the game. I was I was following along because I was not on call to write about this game. But in the Slack channel where you and our editors and, and Zach were discussing what the angle was, it changed about five times from like the eighth inning on. And, right. And it just seemed like <laughs> once we knew what the story of this game was, it changed to something else. Right. Around the seventh inning, I'd settled on a, you know, Corey Seager centered um, a recap because he had come back from injury and he had hit that key home run, what looked like the game winner. And there was the tremendous photo of him holding the bat like a dick and screaming. And and that image right. was you know just so powerful that I couldn't help but write about it. And I said, I'm going to write about this unless Jansen doesn't, you know, unless Jansen doesn't convert the save. And uh, and Mal said, no, he's going to convert the save. And, you know, there really wasn't any reason to suspect <laughs> that he wasn't, but sure enough, that's what happened. So no. I had nothing written at the point at that point, but uh, poor Zach, he he put in a lot of work. Uh, you know, he is uh, he has not appeared at the office so far today, and he's uh, you know I hope <laughs> getting some well deserved rest. He he's been a, an absolute trooper over the first couple games. Yeah. So since you lived through it, I will give you, I think you earned the first overall pick here. You witnessed this stuff firsthand. And I'm actually kind of curious about how the in-stadium experience mm -hmm. differed from the TV experience, because so much of, I think, the enjoyment and the appreciation of this game was about the experience at home and the gifts and the replays and the facial expressions and the flips and things that I would imagine would be difficult to notice or appreciate from your vantage point way up in Dodger Stadium from far away when you're trying to figure out what your story is and just keep track of the actual events. So I'm sure that you were following along on Slack and on Twitter and everything, but do you think that being there was better in some ways, worse in some ways to what most of us had at home? I think that that pretty much um, sums it up. You know, like I didn't see Carlos Correa's bat flip at all because I was, I was right. off looking at something else. And, you know, but you also get a sense of of what the crowd's feeling in a game like this. And this has been true for a lot of the Astros home games that I've been to this postseason that like so much of this is just built up in the nervous energy of 40 or 50,000 people at once. And there's that's something yeah. that doesn't really, you know, as, as as much fear and anxiety, even as a neutral that you might feel watching on TV at home, like uh, this is going to sound like bullshit, but like that's the the atmosphere really adds another level to it. So I think, you know, being there um, is uh, I, I'd say it's it's better. I take that trade off. But like, you know, there are things that you trade off. And I think that. The other thing is, you know, if I were just watching this game at home, it would feel completely different, even if I were like following on on Twitter. But like I was there with Zach and, and in our row were Grant Brisby and Will Leach uh, from Sports on Earth. And uh, so like the four of us, you know, wound up talking, you know, talking through the extra innings, and, you know, going from writing to just all of us sort of pulling back and, and just taking the whole thing in. And, it, you know, at a certain yeah. point like this, 
this goes from from fun to a job to like so weird that you can't really work like you have to turn your you know you know your professional switch off at a certain point and just really take this in because that's the way that everybody else is experiencing this and you know that's you can only be so you know so dispassionate about a game like this you know and you can't really do this job unless you love baseball and if you love baseball like you've got to sort of get wrapped up in the moment in a in a time like that so uh one last yeah. thing before we before we actually do start drafting eventually we're going to get around to the draft when uh the the crowd was filing out there was a, a guy who uh who was walking by our section of the uh, auxiliary press box who uh called me out mm-hmm. by name and asked for uh asked when we were doing the podcast and he said you know remember the, the sad dodgers fan from uh from game two so dude from uh from the reserve level at dodger stadium this this draft is for you we're dedicating this to you all right yeah salute to that guy yeah dodgers fans have not had to feel much fear or suspense this postseason right up until last night other than their one loss prior to this they really had been leading almost always and just rolling over teams so at least they they got a dose of what most fan bases feel during this time of year so yeah i will i will cede the floor to you since you live through it in person what is your number one overall pick the thing that We'll we'll stay with you most maybe from this game. So the number one thing is I think the realization, I think Zach said this first, was the realization that Dave Roberts was out of good relief pitchers. And Josh, Josh Fields mm. coming on in the top of the tenth. And like the the sense that the Astros were awake. Like, you know, this was what, what my recap was pretty much about. Like you have to make sure the monster is dead and like all the way dead before you move on. And like you got the sense that the Astros were starting to wake up. And then Josh Fields, you know, who used to be an Astro and coming in and allowing three Three extra base hits to the first three batters, the only three batters he faced, including two home runs. Uh, I mean, that was just it, it was almost predictable, but it was still shocking in some way. And so like the the. I would say the the emotional highlight or, you know, the emotional peak of this game really happened in, in either the top or bottom of the 10th inning. So I could go either either that way or, or to the Kike Hernandez single. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I would just take the unexpectedness of Jansen blowing a save. And I mean, the Dodgers have been totally automatic in this scenario. I think they were, what, 98 and 0 this season after leading through eight innings. Mm-hmm. So this was unprecedented for the Dodgers this season. They had, what was it, a 28-inning reliever scoreless streak, which was a record. I mean, we were seeing all sorts of graphics on the broadcast about that scoreless streak, about Jansen's, I think, 12 consecutive save opportunity conversions to start a playoff career, which was a record. I mean, really, the the Mariano Rivera comparisons with Jansen just have been getting more Mm -hmm. and more fitting year by year as he sustains his dominance and I think he really has maybe separated himself as the best reliever in baseball I guess Craig Kimbrell still has a strong case but it's really those guys now maybe Andrew Miller looking on the outside but he had some injury issues this year so Jensen I think has solidified his status as just the best and the best at sustaining this level of excellence and to that point had also carried that into October and when you give the ball to him, you feel really good about it, mm-hmm. even if it is the eighth inning, even if he has to get more outs than he usually does. And so to see him blow it 
that right there, I think, is is a recipe for, for an all-time type game because that just doesn't happen. And the way that you kind of remember every Mariano Rivera mistake in the playoffs, whether it's 97 or, or 2001, and that stands out to you, I think Jansen is is approaching that kind of class. And so that was, you know, not the last comeback, not nearly the last unexpected event to happen in this game, but it was maybe the most unexpected just given his dominance and the dominance of the entire Dodgers bullpen this month. Yeah. So uh, just, you left my number two pick on the board and that's the the Dodger comeback in the 10th inning. And it like it was great because mm-hmm. one like Puig was one thing that I, I wonder if if it, commu- or it communicated over the t- to the TV was just the intensity of Yasiel Puig throughout the the later innings of, of that game. Like, yeah, it, yeah I think and, I got I got a sense of that. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, like you could like you could feel the electricity coming off of him. And of course, he comes back, comes back and homers off Giles. And the other thing is like you can see Giles like. Giles is not one of those relief pitchers who's built like he's built to be a one inning closer just in his repertoire, uh, his his effort, his attitude like he isn't he's the guy that you bring in for the traditional save situation. He's really good at it. But once you stretch him like an A.J. Hinch has stretched him a couple times, you can see him gassing once he gets over 20 pitches and this you could see it happening. And, you know, that you, you had the room to make the one mistake to Puig. And then the wild pitch and the single. And like the most incredible thing about this, this game in terms of atmosphere was the way it swung back and forth from, you know, from fear to, to resignation, to excitement, to anticipation, to, yeah. to just the complete release that of, of, uh, of joy that the stadium had after Hernandez tied that game up. It, it was just really incredible to it. And again, it's like the Josh Fields thing that like you could see it coming, but when it actually happened, it was still no less incredible to to see. So yeah, that entire 10th mm-hmm. inning was was just one of the most incredible innings of baseball, and, you know, not up there with like the, the seventh inning of game five of the division series between <laughs> right. Toronto and Texas, but it, it was up there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if this is too broad to, to take, but just the displays of emotion that we saw in this game, not solely from Puig, who displayed his tongue for a large portion of this game and was licking his bat constantly and was taking pitches in incredibly creative and demonstrative ways. But it was that. It was Carlos Correa's bat flip. It was Puig's what the anti bat flip or it's hard even to mm-hmm. this was such a big bat flip game that, and that he subverted and, the subverted the art form <laughs> right it, it was it was yeah. the opposite of a bat flip it was gently laying a bat mm-hmm. down it was that it was culberson after he hit his homer and and that could be a draft pick in its own so i'll i'll leave culberson hitting a home run there for either of us to take later on but his reaction to hitting that home run which made it look like he thought he had tied or won the game. I don't know whether that is actually the case. He denied that that was the case. Maybe he was just legitimately excited because it was legitimately exciting. But his just kind of running with his arms wide open, Justin Verlander emerging from the clubhouse with his back hair and shoulder hair and arm hair on full display just to yell at the Tigers and then disappear back into the dugout. You the Astros, you're was, not... <laughs> Right. Yeah. So sorry. <laughs> yeah. He is still a tiger to me. I it's guess still getting, but it takes him getting used to. It, yeah. He's still he's not a true Astro does. until he's lost a game as an Astro. <laughs> right. And that did not happen in this game. Yeah. So I think 
all of those things combined just, I mean, maybe this is the final nail in the coffin of the idea that you have to maintain yourself in a reserved way on a baseball field or that showing actual motion is a sign of disrespect. And there is a, a great Puig quote after the game that I'm trying to find as I'm speaking. It was in reference to Correa and Correa's bat flip. And it was a beautiful sentiment that I think we all share. He said, I loved it. It was a little bit higher than the bat flips I normally do. He was happy, and that's the way you should play in the World Series. Not everybody gets to play in a place like this. It's good that he plays like this, and it's good that Latino players are able to contribute that way. He wasn't batting too well, and he was only getting a few hits, and when he got the home run, it was a moment for him to be happy. I'm glad that he was able to celebrate that, and that's obviously a player on an opposing team who could have taken offense at that and did not, and Kenley Jensen said the same thing, mm-hmm. I think, about the home run he gave up, that, hey, if you're if you're going to get me, if you're going to hit a home run off me, you're entitled to celebrate, so... I don't know if it's just the particular mix of players we got in this series and very compelling and charismatic personalities or whether it is just an erosion in that outmoded idea that baseball players have to be serious and solemn all the time. But this was the end of that, I hope, because this was so much fun that I think it's hard to dispute the idea that baseball is better when players actually show emotion. Yeah. And that's something we were talking about in in Slack that didn't really make it in my recap was how great an advertisement for the game this was, not just because of drama. Yeah. Like it was great drama, but it was also great theater. And I think that you know, the gold standard for sports and entertainment right now, like even as as a baseball guy, like the NBA is unlike anything else in sports that I can remember just in terms of of the drama and the theater and, you know, the the interpersonal rivalries and the the emotion that you see on the on the court. And, you know, I really hope that, you know, I, I don't know if it's just that these two teams have a lot of younger and a lot of Latino and, uh, you know, in Kenley, Kenley Jansen's case, Caribbean stars um, who sort of didn't really come up through that conservative, uh, you know, sort of rural American um baseball pipeline so that you know and, you know Dallas Keuchel sort of you know uh, he uh, he put his foot well I don't know if he'd consider putting his foot in his mouth but you know he, he complained about Charlie Culberson but that's necessary too like drama requires mm-hmm. some people to get angry you know people getting on each other's nerves so if you know Dallas Keuchel's going to yeah. be a red ass I think that that uh, only enhances the drama for for what I hope will be five more games so it, it's just mm-hmm. like this felt like a somewhere between like musical theater and basketball in a way that baseball just doesn't. And I think part of that is just the frenetic extra innings, just the pace of uh, the relentless scoring. You just don't, you don't see like just back and forth like this, just nonstop for an hour and 15 minutes. Like baseball usually doesn't work like that. And it's unrealistic to set the expectation that it would. But when it does, I think that the players really, really appreciated the, the special uh, plat- platform and atmosphere and kind of of game that they were involved in, and I think that's cool. That you know, this is all, like this is fun. This is entertainment. This is something that everybody grows up wanting to do. And yeah, you know, I've I think it's better when when baseball players really appreciate that that they're not too afraid of looking uncool to you know to show that they that they realize how awesome it is that that they're able to do this stuff. So, you know, I, I mm-hmm. just thought it was incredible. I think one thing I wonder is if it, maybe if it's not this mix of players, that this is the first generation of players where, uh, where 
nobody is old enough to remember baseball before Ken Griffey Jr. And, uh, yeah. I, you know, I wonder if that sort of generational divide is going to lead to this kind of emotional display being uh, more common. So, I mean, that was awesome. It was incredible to watch. You could feel it in the stadium. I imagine you could feel it on TV. The the photos and, and gifts from this game yeah. were just unbelievable. So the shout just, yeah, Seeger's reaction uh, after he hit the home run, both with the bat and with his face and then just the the pitcher faces that we saw, just the screams, just the raw displays of motion in this game were wonderful. So, yeah, I guess uh, technically it's it's your pick now, although we just both talked for a while. Yeah. All right, let's take a quick break, pause the draft, and we'll be right back with more after a word from our sponsor. I tend to leave some things to the last minute, but if you do that for Halloween, it means you end up rummaging through the dregs of the party store bins, trying to scrounge up a costume that'll work. Like, okay, I guess I can go as Harrison Ford from the Blade Runner sequel, just wear a gray t-shirt, or you could be a dragon, like I was in the same costume for about five consecutive Halloweens as a kid. When it comes to booking a hotel, though, being last minute actually works in your favor. As long as you've got the Hotel Tonight app, maybe you need to ghost, get it, Halloween, and find somewhere to escape to. Or maybe you'll find the Bonnie to your Clyde, want to keep the night going. Or if you're the type who started planning your Halloween costume on November 1st of last year and like to have things locked down ahead of time, you can actually book a room with Hotel Tonight up to seven days in advance. Even book up to 100 days in advance in certain major cities. With Hotel Tonight, you'll bag a sweet deal at a killer hotel. So whether you need a new room for today, for Halloween, or for beyond, you'll definitely want to download the Hotel Tonight app. I guess my next pick would be the last bat of the game. Uh, the uh, mm. the Chris Davinsky versus Puig because like I, there was no way Puig was walking like he was going to hit a home run or he <laughs> was going to strike out like there was no in between and just the intensity of that game like you finally thought it was safe after Springer uh, put the Astros up and then it then Culbert you know and I was getting ready to you know say well you know here comes this double switch you know double switching Bellinger out is going to come back to bite Dave Roberts and then Culberson of all people like. Uh, Culberson is apparently Babe Ruth in October, uh, hits the home run, and it just comes down to this, you know, the great relief pitcher versus great hitter. And the two, probably the two personalities in this series who are most likely to heighten an already unsurvivably tense situation, because we all know about Puig. I think, you know, I hope what came through on TV is that Chris Davinsky lives his life like he's 30 seconds from dying of a stroke. Like he is one of the most intense pitchers in baseball. And like you see the like he's got like he just always looks like he just sniffs smelling salts and just him versus Puig. And he throw him, you know, throwing him eight changeups out of nine pitches. Uh, it, just the back and forth. It was, you know, it was a great plate appearance in terms of like a batter pitcher battle, even, you know, if these guys had been half asleep, but just the intensity and two guys who really brought the intensity out of that moment. Like this, this was so far beyond, like we had all just given up on writing. Like this is just, this is going to play out however, and there's no sense in anticipating. And, you know, as, as good a pitcher as Davinsky is and as you know, easy as the path out of that inning looked, you didn't know what was going to happen. It, like that was as fun and, yeah. a, and a bad as I saw all night. Davinsky blowing bubbles the entire time, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> it's just, just a king. <laughs> so, yeah, I think with my next one, I'm going to take a weird one. I'm going to take 
the odd deflections that happened in this game. Yeah, we need I to talk about this. The, I don't I don't care if <laughs> the you ball off the hat brim. Yeah. <laughs> ball off the hat brim on a diving catch attempt in center field that goes right off the brim to the left fielder. And uh, and then I think even better than that, probably umpire Las Diaz just getting nailed by a, a wayward pickoff attempt and keeping the, the runner from advancing. I think both of those, I mean, sure, they were maybe not the first clip that appears in the highlights package about this game, but I think those just added to the absurdity of the entire experience in a really wonderful way. Like, we were all thinking, oh, this is a crazy game. We've never seen anything like this. And then an umpire gets nailed on a pickoff attempt, which is not something I could remember ever happening. You'd think that would happen at some point because umpires not necessarily selected for their athleticism, not always the most mobile people. But in this case, it just looked like Diaz got deked out somehow. He was leaning one way, got caught coming back the other way, and <laughs> just got nailed with this ball. Yeah, he and definitely had an got actual kicked impact off. Yeah. On the game. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at, I think that was the point where it was it was the real like through the looking glass moment of that game more than actual things that the baseball players did. Just the complete randomness. And I've never seen that before. Ness of this game, I think, was maybe most and best embodied by those two deflections. And I mean, we talk, want to talk about crazy deflections. You talk about the ball off Puig's glove where he almost made like <laughs> top play on Sports Center yeah. catch that, you know, it's unfair to say he failed to caught that catch that ball because, you know, it's just unbelievable he, he even got that close. But if he had, you know, Bregman never makes it on base. He never cuts the lead to one. The yeah. Dodgers go home, you know, go back to, to Houston up to nothing. Uh, the yeah. the last Diaz the, pickoff. The glove throw. Oh, yeah, that was to great. Catch it. I, I think I think Phil Hughes tweeted that he wants to see the stat cast for that glove <laughs> throw. It was like. The ferocity of that glove throw was like Jose Bautista bat flip level for different reasons, but that was <laughs> that was ferocious. Mm -hmm. uh, the the Laz Diaz pickoff uh, it shocked me to learn how many separate thoughts I can have in what must have been three tenths of a second because I saw Davinsky <laughs> spin and I was like, oh my god, he's got him! And like I thought, I thought he was going to be out, and then oh my god, he missed just completely missed the throw, and oh my god, he hit the umpire. And then I thought, I forget, I don't remember who was exactly where. I think Maben and Correa, like Maben was running the wrong way, and Correa was a ways off. And I thought that it deflected off Diaz into no man's land. And I thought that that Hernandez was going to be able to uh, to make it around a third base, and then the ball wound up slowing down and, and rolling to a stop harmlessly. So, like it, you know, it wound up. I don't think it even uh, wound up in the box score because nobody advanced, but. Like the amount of the or the number of different thoughts that I was capable of having in a very, very short period of time. Like uh, I was looking through the transcripts after the game. I had Hinch, Roberts, it's Springer. I, I think Verlander, like they all use the phrase emotional roller coaster. And, uh, I, you know, there's no no better way to explain this game or that play in particular. Yeah. All right. You're up next. OK, I'm going to go a little bit off the board here. I'm going to go with George Springer being the hero after looking absolutely terrible in game one. Uh, yeah. You mm -hmm. know, he uh, he got the golden sombrero in game one and then came out, worked a really nice walk. I mean, 
you know, work to walk Rich Hill through behind him. You know, Hill wasn't exactly painting the corners or anything, but he got on base right away and was just was contributing all night. And like there was somebody asked AJ Hinch uh, if he was going to move Springer down the order, apparently unaware that Springer hasn't batted anywhere but leadoff since in the past like year and a half. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I think Hinch was uh he appreciate. I think the way he answered the question showed that he appreciated that not everybody watches all 162 Astros games, but was also like, no, I'm not going to do that. And it was, it was cool to see, you know, not like there was any question about Springer hitting anywhere else or getting benched or anything like that. But you know, it was nice to see him bounce back from uh, from a really really rough game one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a lot of that in this game. It was a nice mix of superstars who are always great being great, which, as you said, is a, a good advertisement for the sport, but also unlikely heroes coming out of nowhere. And I, I guess I'll take Culberson's home run, even though it ended up not being meaningful or, or at least didn't sway the outcome of the game. It just brought the Dodgers to within one there. I think the fact that Culberson hit that, it was his first home run of 2017, right? And we saw him play in the NLCS really because Corey Seager was hurt and Culberson was filling in. And I think Culberson had a better offensive series than anyone on the Cubs in that series, which just goes to show how thoroughly the Dodgers dominated the Cubs. But Culberson had a few extra base hits in that series. Then people were saying, well, maybe he should be left off of the roster for the World Series because Seager's back and you could always just move Taylor or or Hernandez over there if you need to fill in for Seager if he does hurt himself, re-injure that back. And nope, they put Culberson on the roster. He gets into this pivotal at bat here. And of course, he hits a home run. And that was the moment where... I mean, we'll talk about the home runs, I think, shortly, but that was the moment where it just felt like anything could happen as far as hitters and, and pitchers and matchups. Just, I mean, if Culberson can hit a home run, then anyone is capable of doing that. And it felt almost inevitable that the Dodgers were going to come back yet again and tie it there. And that's kind of what you were talking about with Puig, how it seemed as if he was either going to hit a home run or st- strike out and coming on the heels of Culberson's homer. Home run just felt more likely. <laughs> Statistically, yeah. obviously, it wasn't. But you just kind of expected the ball to keep flying over the fence over and over and over again. And and obviously, the elation that Culberson showed and felt after that home run, who cares if it wasn't tying or, or winning? It was still a special moment, and his reaction was memorable. Yeah, I want to... So I'm sort of going down to the end of like specific things that I want to talk about. So maybe we can you know just sort of... Do honorable mention and after another pick or two, mm-hmm. but um, the fact that the Dodgers only had one non-home run hit in this game. Uh, yeah. The most amazing <laughs> thing about this series to me is what's happened to Dodger base runners. That it's all like it's been a series of solo homers or two out walks by Chris Taylor, followed by uh, a home run. Like they haven't really strung together a rally, but they've just struck in so many different different ways yep. uh, at, at so many different points. And then the other thing is like they keep hitting into double plays. So it, after like 15 innings of this uh, of, of this series, they left two guys on base, but hit uh, scored three runs and hit in a four double plays. So that just the I guess broadly the weirdness of what happens to Dodger base runners uh, more specifically uh, the fact that they only had one one base hit that stayed in the park. Yeah, the Dodgers scored more runs than they had hits. Six runs, five hits, mm-hmm. which is weird. And I was well, like, games was like their, that. Their, 
Yeah, I mean, their first non-home run hit, well, that was what, I guess, the... when when was that? It was like not until it was the tenth inning. It was Kike uh, single. It was the only yeah Hernandez's yeah. single right in the in the tenth. That was when they had their first non home run hit. It was just so crazy. And as I was starting to say before, the the mix of people hitting those home runs. I mean, it was great to have an out of nowhere home run hitter slash hero like Culberson, and it was also great to have you know Correa and Seager two of the three generational foundational shortstops that are playing right now and facing off with each other. Both of them homered. Correa also drove in another run on a single. And then, of course, you had Altuve homering. You had Bregman driving in a run. You had Puig homering, Springer homering. Then you had Jack Peterson homering for the that first time in months. That was my favorite one, actually. The yeah, that was great. Yeah, the just honestly my favorite homer in reaction because, like, I was just doing the math on how many pitches Verlander's going to have to throw to be able to stay in for the end of his no hitter, and Peterson just got into one, and he was so happy. Like it, it was like the the man who's been in a desert seeing water because he like he's got <laughs> yeah. like six hits since the All Star break and. That that was just so cool to to see him react the way he was running around the bases. Yeah, he's had such a, a strange early career for a, mm-hmm. a promising player and prospect and a productive young player. He has been benched and demoted, and it's partly a product of weaknesses in his game, but also just a product of the excess of talent that the Dodgers have. Like There are not a lot of teams that would be benching Peterson and benching Asmani Grandal, but the Dodgers have actually had better alternatives at, at certain points, although there are times when I thought Peterson should be playing and, and he wasn't. But I think it was smart of Roberts to put him back in here, and he was rewarded almost immediately. So I don't know. There's just so much to this. I guess we could mention just the the eight home runs which is a record for mm-hmm. a World Series game. And I've seen something of a backlash to how many home runs we've seen this postseason, obviously coming on the heels of a record home run rate regular season. And now we are seeing just unprecedented reliance on the home run in October, which has always been the case in the playoffs more than the regular season, but it's really been taken to an extreme this year. And the Dodgers have barely allowed any runs during their whole during their whole postseason stretch here on non-homers, and most of the runs in this game were scored on homers. And I can see why maybe that would be tiresome. I mean, if every baseball game were like Game One, you'd have a thirty percent strikeout rate and barely any balls in play and no base runners. And if it's not the World Series and Kershaw versus Keuchel, that would probably get old pretty soon. But in this game, I mean, I can see why you'd think, well, it's it's just kind of cheap, you know, it's home runs don't mean what they used to. They're so common. You don't even have to necessarily hit the ball all that well, particularly when it's 90 something right. degrees. These out, were like which, all of the you know. all eight of these home runs were wall scrapers. I don't remember Yeah. Uh, yeah, Peterson got into his, but like there weren't I mean, there is no upper deck in the outfield in Dodger Stadium, but uh, there's like these these were not tape measure shots by any stretch of the imagination. No, right. And and research has shown baseball physicist Alan Nathan has has computed that every 10 degrees of temperature adds 3.3 feet to a, a ball's flight. And so you look at some of these, I mean, you know, typically we'd be talking about much colder temperatures mm-hmm. and balls not going nearly as far and you could almost erase a lot of the home runs that have been hit here. So that's part of it. And juiced ball is part of it and other changes in the game is part of it. But 
we're ending up in this situation now where we're just seeing home run after home run and, and not a whole lot else. And I can see why that would be tiresome. On the other hand, it really adds yeah. this element of constant suspense. Like if you're a run down or two runs down, I mean, it no longer feels like that's hard to come back at all. But I mean, sure, you're not getting as many guys on base maybe in these games and all these home runs almost were were solo shots. But like if you're one run down, it feels like the margin for error is extremely slim and you're just on the edge of your seat at all times. Yeah, I, like I'm I'm one of those guys who if scoring is constant, I'd rather see relatively fewer home runs. But at the same uh-huh. like what I think about home runs just like depends on time and place and situation and and manner. And I, I wouldn't have changed a thing about last night. It was just so and it, like it was just so rapid fire. Like it just you can't build a rally. You can't, you know, manufacture runs that quickly, that shockingly, just that relentlessly. It's you just can't do it any other way. And, you know, just I yeah, like I said, I wouldn't have changed a thing. That was just incredible to see. Yeah, so I don't know what other honorable mentions are. I guess there's the former Astro Josh Fields Mm -hmm. giving up big homers to Houston and then former Astro Kike Hernandez tying it after that. And there was just, I mean, there was a fire outside of the stadium. There were people getting escorted out of the stadium after jumping into the bullpen. (laughs) There were just all these things sort of surrounding the game that just added to the sense that anything could happen here. And, uh, you know, even like on the TV broadcast at one point, George Springer's head was that. like <laughs> cut off by a, a floating CGI ad. Capitalism, <laughs> and, man. You know, that wasn't. Yeah. I mean, just like it, it just felt like even from from where you were to where I was to the production truck, things were just mm-hmm. going awry and nothing was predictable. And it was really special. And I don't know if there's anything else you want to acknowledge before we start wrapping up yeah. other experiences you had in person. Um, I ate a really terrible chicken and waffle sandwich during game one. It was... <laughs> Uh, yeah, they, they wanted for, for social media, they had, uh, Zach and me going around, uh, filming Instagram videos. And one of them was like, they said, you know, there's been a lot of talk about Dodger stadium food. You should get some of the weird Dodger stadium food. And so I purchased the chicken and waffle sandwich and I would not do it again. Um, so (laughs) Well, that was uh, maybe not the most memorable part of most people's World Series experience. Well, that memorable one's, one's going to sure. stay with me for a while. Uh, where do you think this leaves the series? I think the Astros have to be fairly satisfied with having split in Dodger Stadium. That's you know kind of what you want to do. Obviously, they had their two aces going, so mm-hmm. this would have been a devastating yeah. loss if they had not come back for that final time. And now, of course, they're going back to Houston. The series is even. The starting pitcher matchups are maybe not quite as marquee, although certainly McCullers-Darvish is I'm way more excited for McCullers, <laughs> McCullers-Darvish than I was for either of these first two games. But that's just me. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> that's exciting too. So I, I wonder just, you know, from an excitement perspective, will the rest of this series feel like a letdown at all after well, the madness to. of game two and Kershaw being brilliant in game one. I, I don't want to underestimate the series or this postseason because it's been fun and you don't get a whole lot of boring World Series games. So I'm I'm hopeful that even if we don't get the equal of game two, we'll be 
we'll have enough, I think, to to keep us intrigued here. And mm-hmm. it's obviously anyone's series still. And I think most people were expecting this to go six or so. And based on what we've seen so far, you wouldn't change your mind on that. Yeah, what I was, what I've been saying is, I I had Dodgers in six before the series, and the path to that, like the two Astros wins, I thought, I thought Verlander would win in L.A., and I thought that one of two things would happen: either McCullers just goes nuts in Game Three, or Keuchel, or what ha- what almost happened in Game One, where Keuchel just sort of lets the Astros hang around against Kershaw, and they they steal one late, would happen in Game Five. I think mm-hmm. you know that that path to a six six game Dodger win is still there. I think both teams kind of have to be happy with this because. Uh, you know, you sort of factor in, if you're the Dodgers, you sort of va- factor in that Keuchel or, or Verlander is going to get you once, and that's not exactly what happened, but you also don't count on Kenley Jansen blowing another save. Like, the Astros aren't going to win another game this way. And the Astros, particularly <laughs> having looked down the throat of going down 0-2 with their two best pitchers, uh you know, they have to be satisfied to have any other result whatsoever. And they have to be encouraged that their bullpen pitch, pitch pretty well and that uh, the offense mm-hmm. is starting to wake up. So, you know, I think, yep. you know, I don't think that either team would be particularly dissatisfied with the way that things have shaken out so far. Yeah, I think that was one of the big storylines coming into this series was AJ's AJ Hinch's trust or or lack thereof mm-hmm. in the bullpen. And he was forced to dip into it yesterday and for the most part, I mean, there were obviously hiccups there too, but uh, the in the battle of the bullpens, the Astros actually won one for once. Yeah. There were just, you know, a crazy number of pitchers used in this game on on both sides, but I think, you know, there was every reason for Hinch to hope for a bounce back from these guys because they were solid for most of the mm-hmm. season and the first couple playoff series were ultimately a, a small sample and a disturbing sample still, but he was going to have to trust these guys if he wants to win this series. And he was forced to trust them last night and ultimately rewarded at least more than Dave Roberts was. So yeah, that that sets them up well for the rest of this series. And obviously we'll be discussing everything else that unfolds next time. So yeah, just quickly, the, the news that broke on Thursday while we were all still recovering from game two is that Joe Girardi will not be returning to the Yankees in 2018 and his contract was up but I think most people probably expected him to come back coming off an ALCS appearance he is as I determined while I was writing a a quick reaction on on the ringer.com the first I believe manager of an LCS or World Series team to be fired since Ken Maka in Oakland in 2006. So it's it's been a while. I mean, usually wins during the regular season and playoff appearances insulate managers somewhat, and that has not at all been the case in the last couple of weeks. Girardi makes and a trend now. We've got three. We've got Farrell. We've got Dusty Baker. Three managers of playoff teams dismissed, and I believe this will also be the first time that three playoff teams from a single season change managers in one winter. So what do you make of this, if anything? It's, uh, I mean, if this isn't mutual consent, then if they just fire Girardi and I just don't get it because the, you know, you, you make an argument, they go, you know, they go out in three to, to Cleveland, then maybe, you know, the message has gotten stale. It's been a while since Girardi's won a title, which is fair or not the standard by which Yankee managers are judged. I just, 
they're trending in the right direction. He managed that that series really well. He took them to the brink of the World Series, and just every indicator seemed to be pointing in the right direction. To say nothing of he's he's a really good manager to start with. Like the Yankees, you know, Buster only uh, tweeted out something about the Yankees want. A media savvy, stat savvy, open minded uh, manager who's good with players. Like, wow, where can they find a guy like that? Where could they possibly <laughs> look for someone who ticks all those boxes? And you know, I I don't know what Joe Girardi wants to do. Like, if he wants to go back into broadcasting or or do something else, but he's going to write his own ticket. Uh, you know, he's there. You know, no team with a managerial vacancy. Uh, you know, he's going to be able to pick and choose. Like, you know, the the Phillies are sort of narrowing down their search. Uh, you know, I don't know. So the the Mets, for instance, are uh, you know they just hired Mickey Callaway, but like he could have he could have had that job if he wanted. He could have any any open job in the uh, in baseball if he wants it if the the situation's right. So maybe he does that thing like you know like Urban Meyer did, where he just sits out a year and and just waits for the next big gig to open up. But yeah, I mean, he's a really good manager. I thought he managed that that playoff series really well i think he's developing talent or he's developed talent really well in new york um you know this is very much like the, the dusty baker thing like who's who's better that you're gonna go get and that's just mm-hmm. you know it's just very yeah, puzzling I, to me I, I don't even know if it it is ultimately about better i, I think sometimes we can't see what's going on so much of the manager's job is behind the scenes and obviously these guys weren't disasters in the way that that you know Matt Williams or Bobby Valentine is those are rare cases those are exceptions when that stuff becomes public and i think Girardi was a, a fine and capable manager and won a world series and made six playoff appearances with teams that weren't great during his whole tenure mm-hmm. never had a losing season even though the Yankees were outscored three times during his tenure and he kind of shepherded them from this era when they had you know expiring contracts and low returns on investment into this new promising era of the young charismatic core that he's not going to be around for. And he wasn't lovable necessarily. I don't think all players or reporters warmed to him, but he mostly avoided the kind of controversy that can really kill a team. So I think, you know, both as an on-field manager and an off-field manager, he had his strengths. And I don't know if this is his fault. He says it was the Yankees' decision. I don't know that we can blame Girardi here, but I think just in the game as it is today, the front office takes supremacy and and the manager's role has eroded a little bit. And ultimately, the front office, the GM, the owner, the people who are making this decision care about whether they interact and communicate well with the manager. And for whatever reason, it seems like most likely that had mm-hmm. not been the case here, that there had been some tension or some kind of breakdown in that communication and not necessarily Girardi's fault, but... I think that's what teams are prioritizing these days. And maybe, you know, if you if you have some tension with Girardi, whether it's just the accumulation of baggage from 10 years of working together that can sour a relationship in little unexpected ways, or whether it was the the hit by pitch non-challenge in game two or whatever it was, maybe that relationship had just broken down and it was time for a change. And from afar, it seems silly. Hey, you were winning with this team. You're probably not going to win more with another guy, but I guess just on a day-to-day basis, the way that these two sides are working together now and trying to communicate and instruct each other, 
maybe there are times when a change makes sense for reasons that are completely opaque to us. So I don't know, just as I'm always hesitant to celebrate a manager and say, oh, this guy is the manager of the year because his team won a lot of games. I'm also hesitant to say this was the perfect guy for the job because his team won a lot of games. So I I don't know. I, it's curious. It's odd. Knowing what we know, I, I wouldn't have felt moved to make this decision. But I think the point is that with managers, there's always so much we don't know. And teams, by the way, are not making any effort to explain these firings or decisions not to bring guys back. Like David Dombrowski had that kind of awkward press conference where he straight up said, I'm, I'm not going to tell you why I yeah, made this decision. I'm, actually, I'm staggered and, <laughs> that hasn't come out in the globe, the, just the way the, the media right. in that town just yeah. tortures people on their way out. But yeah, yeah that's- and you know, Mike Rizzo was very vague about why they let Dusty Baker go. I mean, they said said, well, we want to win a World Series, and Dusty hadn't done that, but that in itself is not a sufficient reason, and Mm -hmm. Brian Cashman didn't offer any details in his initial statement either. He just said, you know, it was the result of careful and thorough consideration. We have no idea what the considerations were. I I hope it was careful and thorough consideration, because it's a little puzzling without that kind of inside uh, information. It is, is. yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm almost agnostic, I guess, when we're managers are concerned, because there's just so much I don't know. We see snippets of player-manager interactions, but the important meetings between a team and the manager, between the manager and the GM are just outside of our view. And there's just so much that we don't know there that, you know, based on what we do know, I don't know why the Yankees want a different manager, but based on what they know, maybe it makes sense. So uh, it's almost like a not enough information to really condemn either side situation for me. Yeah. All right. Well, enough of of non World Series talk for now. Wasn't yeah. there? Didn't there? Wasn't there supposed to be a moratorium on on news like this during the World Series? I know. Like, I was thinking that. Right. Like, isn't there usually a, a big news dump like the day after the World Series? I guess maybe managerial moves are are an exception, just because you have to start hiring and you have to start figuring out what your team's going to be. And a lot of that news broke like on the day between, you mm-hmm. know, or the two days between the championship series and the World Series. But this one, for for whatever reason, took a little longer. So yeah, if if you're if you're listening <laughs> to this other twenty nine MLB teams, chill out. Just just let us you know <laughs> let us dissect this yeah. World Series because it's been it's been a doozy so far. We don't have time to like you know get our finger in every pot right now. So just give them, give us right. a little bit of air. So we will. We'll be back to talk about all the rest of the World Series action that unfolds between now and Sunday. We'll be in your podcast feeds on Monday. You'll be going to the games as always. I wish you a smoother writing process, but still the excitement that we got in game two. So you've been listening to the Ringer MLB show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. could play it by ear and see how your Halloween goes, or if you're the type who started planning your Halloween costume on November 1st of last year and like to have things locked down ahead of time, you could actually book a room with the Hotel Tonight app up to seven days in advance. Even book up to 100 days in advance in certain major cities. With Hotel Tonight, you'll bag a sweet deal at a killer hotel, so whether you need a room for today, for Halloween, or for beyond, you'll definitely want to download the Hotel Tonight app.